Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello! And welcome to the Pointless Vanity edition of Slate Money. Your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I am joined this week by Anna Shemansky. Hello. And also, kind of excitingly, by Emily Peck of the Huffington Post. Hello. Welcome, Emily. Um, We have decided that we are going to devote this entire edition to, like, we were trying, we were talking about this earlier about like they're not number twos like two of them have actually been ceos but they are the people who you kind of who they're none of them are founders they're all from silicon valley there was they're all relatively early employees um so there's cheryl sandberg at facebook who came in early she's the coo she's a billionaire from facebook alone um but she's not the founder um, there's Steve Ballmer at Microsoft who did become the CEO, but again, he's not the founder mm-hmm. and he also became a billionaire from Microsoft, but he was an early employee, not really a founder. And then there's also Marissa Mayer, who was an early employee at Google, made hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars from her Google stake. And then upon realizing that she was never really going to improve her life at Google, decamped to become the CEO of Yahoo. So, but again, she's not the founder of Yahoo. I think this teaches us that it's good to be number two. It is. <laughs> you you can, essentially end up as a billionaire. There is there is this idea that in Silicon Valley, the way you make billions of dollars is by founding some massive great company. But it turns out you can also just be an early employee and that will do the trick you too. You just ride the coattails of the guy with the idea and so you wind we, up on top. We are going to talk about these guys because they're all... In the news this week for various different reasons, Steve Ballmer um, decided that he was going to invent a website with data on it because apparently that's what you do when you're worth $16 billion and you have nothing better to do. You We're also buy to- the Clippers. And and yeah, so this was before he bought the Clippers and then he bought... Anyway, so he... How much was that? That was a billion and change, That was a lot right? more, actually, than he spent on this, yeah. He spent a billion and change on a basketball team. This is, this is what... In my old counterparties day, we used to call billionaire whimsy. We were like, oh, I have so much money, I can just buy a basketball team. 
We are also going to talk about Marissa Meyer, who no one really believed that she was going to stay on at Yahoo after it got sold to Verizon. And it turns out that she's not, but she's going to leave with lots of money. So much money. So much money. <laughs> um, so, but I think to begin, because we have the amazing Emily Peck here, you were Hi. hanging out with Sheryl Sandberg earlier this week. Hanging out is a cool way of putting it. We talked on the phone. Um, you weren't drinking rosé? We weren't kicking back and drinking rosé. But, you know, it felt like it because Sheryl Sandberg is a very genuine person and comes across in a very nice way. So, you know, we can on, pretend. On a, on a scale of one to ten, how genuine is Sheryl Sandberg? Uh, especially in comparison to other Silicon Valley. We see that's a very low bar. <laughs> well, I feel like Sheryl Sandberg is, is a real politician. She cut her teeth with Larry Summers and she's very good at staying on message she is extremely polished we talked last week um and you know the things she told me i've now heard her be interviewed by katie Couric. i heard her on the times this morning new york times podcast and you know she says a lot of the same things and the things she says are also in her book which is why she's out talking to so many people her book is called um option b facing adversity building resilience and finding joy Wow, that's that's like one of them. I mean, doesn't that book title just make you shiver with like? I mean, it comes across your typical corporate speak, feel good, Harvard Business Review kind of manual to life. Um, but and, and by the but, way, it is written. She has a co-author on this. Yes, and the co-author is, if I'm not mistaken. A management professor? Adam Grant. He is a management professor, a psychologist at Wharton, and he's also like a TED Talk superstar. You know, people love his TED Talks. He's very inspirational, and he's a friend of hers. And it has one of these, like, Freakonomics-ish um, book covers where you have a balloon holding up a breeze block or something. Yes, yes. All of this is true, but at the same time, I mean... So to back up what happened to Sheryl Sandberg, who is already a very well-known um, Facebook executive, the author of Lean In, which is sort of this like famous corporate feminist tome that people either loved or hated. About two years ago, she's on vacation with her husband and he died suddenly. He was he had a, a cardiac arrhythmia while he was on the treadmill. And it was really shocking. And, you know, no one knew what to say about it or anything Um and about a month after it happened, she published this Facebook post that was really moving. And, you know, you can say you can be really cynical about Sheryl Sandberg and you probably should be. She's a billionaire and it's hard to think of her as a real human being. But she published this Facebook post and talked about how sad she was. And, it, and, and so that was a little window of, oh, my God, like these icons of business are humans, too. And she published this Facebook post and it got shared a lot and it touched a lot of nerves and everyone and I even I personally and I'm about as cynical as they come I was like oh this is quite touching wow and the way Whoa. that says something and and the way to just completely undercut all of this is to then turn your Facebook post into a self-help management book I'm gonna disagree here this is I, I'm gonna out myself here as I'm a pretty big Sheryl Sandberg fangirl to be perfectly honest, I think she does not actually get the credit she deserves. I think she gets way more criticism than she deserves. And I think one thing she has done at almost every stage in her career, we saw this with Lynn, we're seeing it now, is she takes something that happens in her life and she tries to figure out how can I 
apply this to other people's lives? How can I take what I've gone through and potentially use it to actually help other people? And I know that the cynics <laughs> out there will say like, oh, no, she's just trying to make money. She's just trying to gain more publicity. I don't really think that's the case. I think that's actually I'm curious to see what the rest of you think. So I, I read an interview which Cheryl did with Jesse Hempel at Back Channel. And there's this classic quote. She goes, I am a bigger picture manager because I've lived through something that's a big picture quote. It's it's um this is a bit like Ariana Huffington talking about how meditating and sleeping can make you a more efficient and productive worker. It's like, come on. No, no, no. I, I've <laughs> spoken to both of these women and just to focus on Sandberg, what happened to her was very, very real. I mean, not getting sleep is it's, I guess, a problem, but having your husband die suddenly and having to fly home and tell your seven-year-old and your 10-year-old that their father was is dead. But the idea that you're then going to write a book saying, I am a better manager because of this, like, why do you need to write so, that book? Um, she kind of gets into this. There's a good Business Week piece out today. And basically, it's this concept which she started with in Lean In, which is like, be yourself at work, which sounds so cheesy and lame. But I think especially for a lot of women, being yourself at work is a big deal. Like, especially maybe 10 years ago, before Sandberg started talking, we all sort of came in and like pretended to be men, kind of. And like, you got pregnant, but you hit it. You left work at five thirty, but you didn't say why. And you, you know, you put. She used to leave her chair, her um, jacket on the chair to pretend, you know, she was still in the office and things like that. And I think the acknowledgement on her part that she's a real person helps her. The people working for her feel more at home and kind of makes them better workers. So I kind of buy into it. I'm sorry, feel it. <laughs> and that's kind of the theory behind Lean In, which is this idea that. People, by changing their own life and then potentially succeeding, can then help other women who can then change their own life. And, and, and granted, I mean, I, I know there are criticisms of this and some of them are valid, but I think that's what she's trying to do with this book. It's not the book itself really isn't a traditional you know, management book. It, it, it's really more talking about how to deal with mortality and loss. And I think this is interesting. I know in, in your article, you mentioned this. We have so many of these Silicon Valley, you know, tech guys right now talking about how to ingest baby blood to yes, live forever. Yes, exactly. And yet Sheryl Sandberg is writing about mortality and loss in the real world. Yes, there are these Silicon Valley CEOs that want to live forever, spending, you know, millions of dollars trying to become vampires or something. I don't know. And then Sheryl Sandberg's like, yeah, no, everyone dies. So let's just let's actually deal with that instead of playing fantasy, which I think is interesting. And is Sheryl Sandberg the I mean, it's not like there's any shortage of books out there about death and mortality and how to deal with it. Um, is there a reason why the CEO of Facebook has, has something useful to add to this conversation? She gets I mean, the the sad fact is like no one no one else's grieving book is going to get uh, an interview with Katie Couric or a New York Times article or the cover of Time. Like she's bringing publicity. The, the role she can play is that she can get attention for something that's like kind of the most boring topic there is or the most universal topic. You know, she's making it fresh. OK, so this is actually an amazing segue. <laughs> oh, because I because in the next segment, I want to talk about Steve Ballmer, who's also taken like a relatively boring su subject. And because he's Steve Ballmer has managed to get a bunch of publicity around it. Um, but before we leave Cheryl, um, 
on this, like, does she have at least more claim to us actually picking up this book and reading it and taking it seriously as a guide to grief and loss? Um, a, then someone like Steve Bauman would, and B, then a genuine expert in these kind of things would. Um, I think so, because she's got her personal story in there. And like at the end of the day, personally, like I want to read someone's story. I don't need to read Is like this a like bulleted a list of things. Thing? No. Oh, it's more of an empathy thing, right? I agree. And I think that because she's giving her personal story allows you an avenue into thinking about these larger concepts and specifically thinking about how they relate to your larger life and work in particular. I actually think this is something that is unique about this book. Very few books about grief specifically talk about how to deal with your coworkers, how your coworkers should deal with you. And I think as more and more people go through not just the loss of a husband, but, you know, big issues in their life that we were often taught we shouldn't talk about. We should just pretend we're a robot. She's saying, no, your life does influence your work. And, and I think that's why this book is important. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and... 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So let's go back to Steve Ballmer. Can't wait. Because, again, like, Sheryl Sandberg gets... Katie Couric and Emily Peck to write about her book because she's Cheryl. And Steve Ballmer has also gone on exactly the same publicity tour. And his PR people phone up all of these big name journalists and say, would you like an interview with Steve Ballmer who's, you know, pushing some new thing? And they're all like, yes, in the way that they wouldn't for anyone else launching exactly the same product. Steve Baumer's product is something called usafacts.org. And... <laughs> okay, wait. It's the worst it... title ever. <laughs> um, so the first place it was announced, because um, if, if you're Steve Baumer, the single biggest name journalist you can think of, the one person you want to go to is Andrew Ross Sorkin at the New York Times. And so he phones up Andrew Ross Sorkin and they hang out and Andrew writes this classic of the of the genre where Steve Baumer is talking about like, I quit as CEO of Microsoft World. Oh, quit? <laughs> you can see the air quotes right. from Anna here. I was fired as CEO of Microsoft and um, I didn't have anything to do with my life. So my wife said, um, maybe you can give away some of your gazillions of dollars. Quote, an idea he initially rejected, but, open quote, but come on, doesn't the government take care of the poor, the sick, the old? <laughs> Mr. Balmer recalled telling her, after all, he pointed out, he happily paid a lot of taxes. Oh, Steve. And he figured that all that tax money should create a sufficient social sa safety net. Steve, Steve, Steve. <laughs> this is this is the the 
amazing thing about billionaires. They're like, well, I pay so much tax that everyone in the country should be able to just, you know, be able to get housed and fed and everything just with my taxes. The level of ignorance he displays in the New York Times article is actually pretty astonishing. Um, Did you read the part where he's like, I mean, if you look at the tax deductions people get, they're actually just subsidies to the affluent. (laughs) He's like, the mortgage (laughs) interest deduction is a subsidy to the affluent? Who would have thought? Who knew? It's kind of like Trumpian. It's like, who knew these things were so complicated? (laughs) Who knew that teachers and firefighters are government workers? Unbelievable. You think they're just bureaucrats pushing paper. Exactly. It's like, it's really amazing that he had to spend $10 million to discover this. And then he gets to sell it to the New York Times as an amazing discovery. Yes. Yeah, only, so, so, so he spends $10 million looking at where government money goes because apparently no one has done this before. <laughs> no. And it is described by Andrew Rost Sorkin as, quote, a stealth startup. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, like, what? Because because you need to keep <laughs> this secret. Every startup is a stealth because you don't have any money. <laughs> like, so this is the first thing. Like, you're you're trying to get information out into the public domain why would you do that stealthily? <laughs> There's no reason to do that stealthily. And anyway, so he does his stealth startup. He calls it USA Facts and then says, Sorkin, the database is perhaps the first nonpartisan effort to create a fully integrated look at revenue and spending. The word perhaps is doing a lot of work yes. there. <laughs> um, so this brings me to this idea which I got from David Callahan, who's just written a book called The Givers about very rich people, um, which is a great concept called hyper-agency, which is basically, if you're worth $16 billion, if you help create Microsoft, if you are someone who has actually changed the world in a non-negligible way, you think that you are some kind of incredibly powerful person and you can do things which other people have never been able to do and a lot of rich people have this idea called hyper agency and so what happens is steve Ballmer goes to bing.com types in like you know how much money do we spend on police officers doesn't find the answer immediately and says well obviously the answer doesn't exist i need to spend 10 million dollars giving people the answer and according to to andrew ross sorkin I'm going to quote here again, because this this article was classic. Want to know how many police officers are employed in various parts of the country and compare that against crime rates? Want to know how much revenue is brought in from parking tickets and the cost to collect? Want to know what percentage of Americans suffer from diagnosed depression and how much the government spends on it? That's in there. You can slice the numbers in all sorts of ways. So I went to usafacts.com. I tried to do all of those things and I couldn't do any of them. I wanted to like this site so much. I love data. I love analyzing data. I found this site impossible to use. I I thought it both talked down to you in terms of this silly framing device they have with the preamble and trying to categorize spending and revenue based on the sections in the preamble. But then it was impossible to find any of the data that I actually wanted. Like literally the specific data points that Steve Baumer is talking about in his interviews, the specific data which Andrew Ross Hawkins is saying, this is data which is in there, is not in there. No. A lot of things it said coming soon or we'll have this eventually. Um, and also, you, you, I'm not sure if they're um, leaving it open on the back end. So, you know, a, a journalist can go in and manipulate the data and things like that. Yeah, or do, is it just sort need, of so, so there are people who understand this. 
people like Max Rosa have made their entire careers about like f- getting public data sets, making them tractable, making mm-hmm. them searchable, making them beautifully chartable and this kind of thing. It is incredibly difficult to do. And with a marginal extra $10 million from Steve Ballmer, plus another 3 to $5 million a year, someone like Max Rosa could really do amazing things with that. Or you know what else he could do with this? He could just give it to the St. Louis Fed. Because if you want facts about, I mean, okay, Anna, you used to work at a hedge fund. How many times a day would you go to Fred? Honestly, because we were an EM fund. Oh, maybe, yeah, EM not quite so much. But Fred is the greatest resource Mm -hmm. in the world. I mean, it's, they, they have this awesome data set. You can really do the things like if you have, if you want to compare you know, the number of police officers to crime rates, you know, you can find the police officer chart, you can find the crime right. rate chart, and you can divide one by the other. You can't do that with Steve Bauman's say. No, this is like if you go, if you use Bloomberg, where you essentially can get any data point anyone could ever want, and then do whatever you want with it. Right. That is useful. Okay, so a, a little side note about Fred. Emily, do you ever hang out in Fred? Are you nerdy enough to... I occasionally will go there. You can. It's the St. Louis um, Federal Reserve's website where you can tap into a bunch of data and they'll make charts for you. Unemployment, it's, blah, blah, blah. It's one of the <laughs> best charting tools on the internet. And charting tools on the internet are difficult things. And, and Fred has really got it, done it really well. It's a small team at the St. Louis Fed on a very small budget. And I'm sure they would really, really appreciate some Balmer-like money to be able to do more ambitious things. Bringing together data sets and just doing an astonishing job of getting it all in one place. And if you, back in the days of the econoblogosphere, used to, I used to come across thread charts multiple ty- times a day. Um, people don't embed thread charts quite as often as they used to, but you will still recognize them as soon as you see them. And they're an amazing public service. And maybe if Steve Ballmer is finally realizing that, you know, the public sector can do amazing things, maybe... <laughs> eventually he'll realize that one of the amazing things it does is exactly what he thinks he can do better without even realizing it already exists. Yeah, someone should have said no to Steve Ballmer. And that's the problem, (laughs) I think, ultimately, is that no one ever says no to these guys. Yeah. Who is the audience for this? Because if the point of the site is in like the age of fake news, I'm going to put this data out there, nobody who actually probably voted for Trump is going to this site. I mean, this is the exact opposite of what we were just talking about. Sheryl Sandberg uses her own life to teach people something new about something old. Steve Ballmer spent $10 million, I think, to teach himself something and is pretending that we're all going to benefit from it, too. But really, it seems like he is the one who's benefiting from this. He's learned some stuff, but no one else. Yeah, it's the ultimate pointless vanity project. And because he's still Steve Barmer, he gets attention. And maybe, I think we can all agree, no matter what we think about Sheryl Sandberg, that Steve Barmer deserves all of this attention much less than she does. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very much Firm so. Firm yes on that. Yes. Both from the book and from what she's done <laughs> on Facebook. <laughs> As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, so we kind of like Cheryl. We kind of hate Steve. What do we think about Marissa? Marissa. Okay, so number one. So Verizon is going to be buying Yahoo's core business for $4.5 billion. And as a result of this, Marissa Meyer, the current CEO of Yahoo, is going to be getting a payout valued at between $186 and $187 million. Now, let's remember that when... Marissa was brought on in 2012. It was with the expectation that she would increase traffic, increase revenue, increase um, share price value. And and she did one of those. She did. <laughs> a lot. And again, as I would say, a lot of the share price increase is a result of Alibaba as well as Yahoo so Japan. We'll we'll back up a little bit. Basically, Yahoo, when she became CEO was a huge pile of Alibaba shares with a kind of crappy internet business attached. That huge pile of Alibaba shares turned out to be worth even more than people thought it was worth um, when Alibaba went public. Uh, there's also a big pile of Yahoo Japan shares, which are also which have also gone up in value. And so the value of Yahoo has gone up what to over 200% since mm-hmm. Marissa took over. The bit which you think of when you think of Yahoo, which is Yahoo Mail and Yahoo Finance and that kind of stuff, that has been sort of going radically sideways. She bought Tumblr. That didn't work very well. No, she made a lot of acquisitions. That's actually part of the problem. Um, And eventually everyone realized that this going concern was not much of a going concern, and it got snapped up by Verizon, which owns Emily Peck. Yes, I should say that Verizon also owns um, AOL, which owns the Huffington Post, which is where I work. It's, it's all one big roll-up. Um, but I, I feel like I was thinking about Marissa Meyer a lot because she is criticized. She didn't save Yahoo, blah, blah, blah. First, Yahoo just got is getting bought for $4.5 billion. The share price is up over 200%. So seems okay. Seems fine. I, I, would, so, yeah, I mean, no, she no. didn't save Yahoo, but like, was Yahoo going to get saved? Has, has Did AOL ever really get saved but tim armstrong um heads up aol he is viewed really positively by everybody and their stories are to to my mind and maybe one of you can explain how they're different are very similar so they're both former google executives Mm -hmm. and tim was the ad side of google Mm -hmm. he's this sales guy um Marissa was the product side. She was the person who famously decided that the Google homepage would be a big blank white page with nothing but a little search box in it. Smart. And and it turns out that Tim, the ad sales guy, is actually better at running companies than Marissa, the I like blank white space person. Well, I mean, that's how it's perceived. But I mean, so Tim got AOL was doing sort of the way Yahoo was doing badly, old internet company, no one cared. It was kind of a punchline. 
He got there, blah, blah, blah. He sells it to Verizon for around $4 billion. And everyone's like, oh, my God, great job, Tim Armstrong. Stay with us forever. We want you to stay forever. And and, and the press has been very positive on him. With Marissa Meyer, it's like, she's making $180 million. And she never saved that company and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just trying to figure out what the difference is. Yeah, and and I do think it's interesting. I mean, I I think that... One of the easy answers is it's an issue of gender, which I I don't know if I entirely buy. I, I I've you know I've read a lot of stories of Marissa Meyer, and it, yes, it is interesting that many of the traits that she's criticized for, other CEOs are. You mean like turning up three hours late to meetings and that kind of have thing? Have you read the Steve Jobs biography? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, essentially, she engages in many of the behaviors that allow a lot of CEOs, frankly, a lot of poor management behaviors that if a company is doing well, we we kind of say, oh, this is an example of their genius. If the company is doing poorly, right. this is a management problem. But, and but, but Marissa Meyer, you know, was marginalized or pushed out of Google for not being a great manager and she was criticized at yahoo for not being a great manager and steve jobs let us not forget was fired from apple for mm. not being a right. great manager and, and i and i actually yeah, i agree with you here I, I think ultimately there is a lot of evidence that she frankly was not a great manager she made a lot of rash decisions she micromanaged morale was very low mm-hmm. there was a lot of turnover at lower level and executive level and and again, so much of the share price increase seems less because of anything she actually did structurally in the company, which is what she was hired to do. Right. If you really just wanted someone to unlock the value of the Alibaba shares, you could probably find that person without paying them $200 million. Yes. True. But I, I'm also just curious what this says, like moving outside of Marissa Meyer herself, just in terms of CEO pay. And I push back a little bit on the way a lot of journalists have covered this story as though this is an example of just CEO pay that has no relationship to performance, if only because so much of the of the value is option value. The reason that she's getting this big payout is not because she's being handed cash. It's because options and restricted shares are being accelerated so she can now exercise them now. And yeah, there's this thing called a liquidity event. Basically, the, there's a liquidity event from this spin-off of Altaba, which is the core of the business, which is this like little black box which owns all of the Alibaba shares and will eventually get bought by Alibaba, but no one knows when. And then there's the option, the liquidity event from selling Yahoo to Verizon, which is you know again when you sell your company, you have a certain stake in the company, you have a bunch of options at a certain share price, and those pay out too. And I feel like. There's, it's very easy to get outraged at payouts. Everyone I know was outraged at the payout, for instance, to Bill O'Reilly when he got fired from Fox News. He's getting one year's salary, which is about $25 million. But he had a four-year contract. They were contractually obliged to pay him $100 million. And so, at some point, this is just like mathematics. Is the, no. the moral? No. Yeah, I'm going to disagree. CEO pay, I mean, you can justify it however you want to justify it. You can say the share price, blah, blah, blah. You can talk about a liquidity event, whatever you want to say. These these people make too much money. I'm going to push There's back. no defense. They do I'm make There's well, no I, defense I think for a $180 million payout. I do think that CEOs make 
too much money, especially because of the way the their payouts are structured, their pay structure. But I do think that some of the stats people give on CEO pay are a little misleading. Well, when you look at when because like two uh, like EPI puts out a report, um, this progressive economics place, and they say the average CEO makes two hundred and seventy six times what it's the actually average around three hundred thirty. Yeah, I, it, it's really high, but, but that's, that's misleading. You think? Yes, because if you are a CEO, the average Fortune five hundred company is about twenty billion dollars. You make a decision that increases your share price value by one percent. You just made your company. million. You just paid for yourself. If you are an average employee, nothing you do can have that same effect on value. So to compare those things, I would argue you are not comparing apples to apples. I am not saying that I don't think that we have a problem with wealth concentration. That I completely agree with. But I think that you're also not taking into account the fact that when people say how much CEO pay has increased since the 80s, they'll often say it's increased sixfold. Mm-hmm. But firm size has increased sixfold. But I think so what, the CEO so this is, yeah. pay has increased sixfold, but average employee pay, median income in the United States is just stagnated. So, so no one is, is only the CEOs yeah. are enjoying and a I fair agree wage. That. And that I very which much is unfair. And so that, the, yeah, so that let's, I agree with. let's just bring this down to its, its core question here. Here, which is that should P- CEOs be t- paid for their time and effort like the rest of us are? Or should they be paid basically as proxies for the company mm-hmm. as a whole? Mm-hmm. And that if you're in charge of a $100 billion company, you should get paid 100 times more than if you're in charge of a $1 billion company. I don't think that running a $100 billion company should pay you 100 times more than no, a $1 billion company. What I'm company. saying is because so much of your pay package is based in option value, it's going to be related but why, to the why, size. No, but the re- okay, the, the reason why CEO pay is structured this way is, is complex. And there are lots of reasons, but at the heart of it, it has to do with tax laws and the fact that it's very tax inefficient to pay a, a high salary to CEOs and that you throw a bunch of options at CEOs which don't need to be expensed. And it winds up looking, there's there's certain optics to it, which I don't entirely understand. But at the end of the day, the CEOs are paid too much. I, I mean, I, I agree. Yes. I Well, I, I would actually argue it's more that the average employee is paid not enough. Yes. Um, Which I realize those things are not disconnected. But again, part of the reason you pay CEOs in options more is because you want to encourage, you want to align the interests of the CEO with the company. If you just pay out big cash or even just bonuses, that does not incentivize the type of behavior we want to incentivize. Having said that, we all know. Wait, do you have any reason to believe that? I just don't believe that. If you're running a company and you're the CEO, you're you're incentivized for the company to do well. I mean, uh, and and the company doing well and the stock price going up are two different things. And there's no particular reason why the CEO should be incentivized to raise the stock price rather than to just improve yeah. the f- company as a whole. Right, but if you improve the company as a whole, you will raise the stock price. I, I, I think the argument often becomes that the way that these packages are also structured, they tend to encourage short-term thinking as opposed to more long-term planning. And so I would argue that if we want to talk about how we can improve CEO pay, a better focus than just saying, oh, these people are paid too much, is tying more of their pay to long-term performance as opposed to just handing them a bunch of cash and then they can just leave or to short-term performance, which is what we're currently doing. Or what I would say is that we should basically 
become much more German about these things, have worker representatives on the board and pay the CEOs a lot of money, but not American levels of money and say, your job is to improve the company as a whole, which means, yes, to a certain extent, the stock price, but also the average pay and also the profitability and also various other stakeholders. And we're going to work together to create a vibrant, healthy company. And we're not going to obsess about share price. And we're not going to hand out lots of options. That sounds good. Give everyone a raise, I think. That I will agree <laughs> with. Although I will say... <laughs> I'm not opposed to having employees on boards, although if you look at the German example, it, it's not great for that argument because the board, the companies that have more employee representation tend to underperform. In the stock market, but that's okay. The job of a company is not to have a stock price going up. Okay, but then it is... <laughs> This is a tense point right which, here. Which is, which is a, a, an argument we will revisit yes. many, many times <laughs> on Slate Money. become emblematic of like the evil banker over here. <laughs> I love having Anna on this show because she's just this red in tooth and claw capitalist. <laughs> it's kind of true. <laughs> Although it's funny because my last firm that I was at, Oak Tree, I was like known as like the, like the team socialist. <laughs> little, little did you know how, how unsocialist you are. Hi, I'm Frances Fry. And I'm Ann Morris. And we are the hosts of a new TED podcast called Fixable. We've helped leaders at some of the world's most competitive companies solve all kinds of problems. On our show, we'll pull back the curtain and give you the type of honest, unfiltered advice we usually reserve for top executives. Maybe you have a coworker with boundary issues, or you want to know how to inspire and motivate your team. Give us a call, and we'll help you solve the problems you're stuck on. Find Fixable wherever you listen. Okay, I think it's time for a numbers round. Um, Emily, did you bring a number? Uh, I did. Oh, awesome. Yes, I'm I so did. Glad you I brought a number. number. What's your number? My number is $4 billion. Um, that's how much money Donald Trump, our president, his heirs will gain if his tax reform plan actually goes through and he gets rid of what he likes to call the death tax, which is actually just the inheritance tax, which is 40% right now, but he wants to eliminate entirely, which would be really good for Trump and his when he dies and his family. Yes, essentially, I feel like that in so much of that. I think calling it a tax plan is fairly generous. Yes, plan. <laughs> yeah, so, it's a so tax word doc. It's, 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 a, it's a tax one sheet. And for, for the, um, yeah, we, we are... We did make a conscious decision not to talk about. Sorry. The, no, I mean you can mention it in the number. You can mention anything you like in the numbers round, but we did make a conscious decision not to like the vote a segment to the quote unquote Trump tax plan precisely it's not real. because right now it's vaporware and there's a lot of noise around it, just as there was a lot of noise around the healthcare plan, and there's a very good chance it'll wind up in much the same place as the healthcare plan did. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Um, my, I have a China number. I know... <gasps> oh, you see, Anna, did you have a China I number too? I have a too? China number. All right, what's your wow. China number? My China number is 25,000. What's that? The tons of avocado that were imported into China last year. That's... Is that a lot or a little? It's a lot. In 2012, <laughs> they imported 154 tons. And now they're importing 25,000 25, tons. And how, how oh. many tons of avocados? I mean, I feel like I get through 25,000 tons <laughs> of like avocado. Is it like one of those avocado toast trends? Has it taken over China? <laughs> well, it, it, granted, it, it's still a very small portion of the total <laughs> avocado, the global avocado market. 
But it does indicate changes in the Chinese consumer. I think we have these stereotypes about the Chinese consumer and the Chinese middle class. And this, there's also a growth in athleisure wear in China, a growth of well, is it, what, gym what memberships. Is, what is there not a growth in? <laughs> I, I, I'm going to come in with, with my number here, um, which is also a little bit to do with Chinese stereotypes. But I'm I'm an old person. And when I was growing up, there was this stereotype of... Beijing or Peking, as we called it back then, of everyone like riding around on bicycles. And then, of course, there was this big explosion in China and it became this traffic clogged nightmare. My number is 11 million. 11 million is the number of registered users in Beijing's bike share programs, which have basically sprung into existence in the space of nine months. That's half the population of Beijing is now registered on these things. There are 7 million bike rides per day on 700,000 shared bikes. Suddenly, Beijing is becoming a biking city again. There's a five-year plan which basically says there's going to be 3,200 kilometers of um, bike lanes in Beijing by 2020. And this, this is like my one little bit of hope for the urbanist agenda in China, that they are finally and quite effectively and very quickly moving towards a wonderful sort of Copenhagen. Because the Chinese government, which has a lot of problems, but unlike our current government, actually believes in climate change and also believes more than that in pollution. And And also believes that people have to be able to get around and also has a wonderful way of being able to leave things like this to the private sector. All of this was done with private money. Wow. Okay, although if you're talking about the private sector, <laughs> I'm sorry, I keep using air quotes and I'm on a podcast, um, but the connections between the the, the government and yeah, private sector. Yeah. And- these are all very, the, the, the people building these things are close to the government, clearly. Um, but they it seems to work. And, you know, I've seen the, growing pains of the bike share programs in Paris and London and New York and Park Slope. what has happened in Beijing and a fraction of the amount of time that those cities have had their sh- programs is just astonishing. They're um, just riding bikes and eating avocados over there. <laughs> Healthy living. Okay, I think that's it. I think with that we are going to wrap up Slate Money for this week. Emily Peck, thank you so much for coming on. It's always awesome to have you here thank you so much it was so fun and let us know what it's like i mean what so what's the plan you're being called oath we're being called oath that's the plan the plan is to be called oath but also still verizon and also still have post which we just changed our name from the huffington post to huff post so the huffington post is no longer the huffington post it's now huff post which is part of aol which is part of Oath, which is part of Verizon. Yeah, simple. Simple. I'm glad we've got that cleared up. <laughs> the corporate Levite. <laughs> um, so, yes, we here at Slate, which is a sister company of Panoply, which is a part of Graham Holdings. Thank you for listening. Um, corporate structures are confusing. We're going to have a whole episode devoted to like the bizarreness of brands and structures because it makes no sense. Um, but thank you to Zach Dynasty. And a genuine, honestly, very many thanks to Zach, who has been an awesome producer for for on and off about a year. Um, Zach is off to greener pastures. Um, we will be back with a brand new producer next week, so you can um, send in your 
thanks for the past year's worth of Slate Money episodes to Zach at SlateMoney at Slate.com for the next week or so. Um, thanks to, to the other Slate panoply types like June Thomas and Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers. And check out all of their podcasts at panoply.fm. We will talk to you next week on Slate Money. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.